go into your word together that we will see something and hear something in it and, and be changed for your glory. That we'll be encouraged by it, perhaps convicted by it, uh, certainly built up by it, so that we might be your church in this world that, that would bring glory to the name of the Savior. So help us to have ears ready to hear what the Spirit has to say and eyes ready to see what you have graciously provided for us in your book. So we ask this in Christ's great name. Amen. So you can open to the book of Acts, to chapter 2. It's kind of a starting point of where we're at in, in the last week and this. And it'll be a few weeks probably where we're talking about uh, the church as a community, a spiritual community. What does a spiritual community look like? I uh, kind of introduced it last week that, the, you know, that you hear every now and then people will say, well, I want to be part of a New Testament church. Well, what, what was that New Testament church like? Well, that's what we're, we're looking at. And what we see in the book of Acts in particular is that, is that it was a community of people who had common interests, common goals, they, they were located in a particular place, but they were located within a larger society as well. You know, there is the church and then there's the world, and the church is to impact the world, but we're looking at the church as this community of people that God had redeemed out of the world. I mean, there are other beautiful metaphors in the scriptures I mentioned last week that describe the church, you know, such as that there were, were a flock, a flock of sheep. Um, and that Jesus is our shepherd. Aren't you glad that the Lord is our shepherd? Aren't you glad? And uh, he's, he's the good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep. He's the uh, great shepherd as well, and uh, the watches over us and protects us uh, as we live in this harsh environment called the world. Uh, the, the church is also referred to as, as a temple. It's a building uh, but it's a living building. You know, you think as you read through the scriptures, you read about the tabernacle in the Old Testament, which was a tent, and then the building of the, the beautiful temple of Solomon, and then it was rebuilt after the exile, and then it was added to uh, by Herod the king. Uh, Forty-six years it had been building on that. Well, Jesus has been, in a sense, building his building all along. You know, the church is, is his building. It's not a building as such, it's people. And that's why it's a living building. And we're like stones that are placed into the building. Uh, but, it is, it, you know, the, the, the church as a building or as a temple is to be a place where the name of God is honored, where the Lord himself lives. Well, he lives within us as children of God. And he deserves to be glorified by us. The church is also seen as a human body. Paul uses that illustration quite well in, in 1 Corinthians uh, in particular, where he says, it's like you're all members of the, this body, and each member is a, like a part of the body. Like some of you are little fingers, and some of you are little toes. Some of you are eyes, and some of you are ears, and some of you, you know, are the, the guts. We're all, all members. And, and don't, no member of the body is more important than the other. In fact, Paul says that the, those that seem to be less honorable are actually more honorable. So you might think, well, I really, it's just, I'm a little, 
little toe. Well, you know what? If you are without your little toe, you lose your balance. And that's just a fact. So beautiful metaphors, and there are others as well, but in the book of Acts in particular, it is you know, seen as a community of people. And, and so we are looking at that, and, and I want to read uh, this morning just Acts chapter 2. Peter has preached the first gospel message uh, there in Jerusalem. Many people, over 3,000, had 3,000 people had trusted in the Lord and were, were baptized and made members of God's family, his, his body, his building, his flock. Um, and, and then it, it gives us a paragraph that kind of summarizes early life in the community, starting in verse 42, where it says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those that were being saved. Beautiful description of life in the early church and uh, really a beautiful description of the community life that they had with one, or, one another and things that we're looking at uh, t- together really come out of that for the most part. Last week we, we uh, just looked at the first mark of the spiritual community in the New Testament, uh, the same mark that should be true of us, and that is that they were a unified, a unified uh, community of people. And the, the church overall has taken a big hit over the last year or for many different reasons. Uh, and our church as well, where that, that unity has seemed to be lost to some degree. But that was a mark of the early church is they were unified. They had uh, uh, the same purpose, the same goals, the same things in mind, the same uh, focus in life. And, and what was that? I mentioned it last week. It was to exalt the Lord and it was to edify one another, and it was to evangelize lost people. And you even see it right in that text. People were being saved as, as uh, they were interacting with the community that God had created there on that day of Pentecost. So they were a unified community, and we are to be that. It's, it's a word that's used uh, 12 times in the New Testament, 11 times the word hamamuthad, and this word for one mind, one purpose, one passion, uh, etc. It's found 12 times in the New Testament, 11 times in the book of Acts, describing the community of God's people, as well as describing the community of the world. And we see that the world is unified, and we as believers are to be unified. So we want to pick up with the second one this morning, which is they were a, a biblical community. They were a biblical community. We are to be a biblical community. And what I mean that by that statement is, is that you know, the proclamation and instruction of the word of God had a high priority in how 
they lived their lives and on what they did. And I, I will tell you that most evangelical churches today will take Acts 2.42 as kind of a philosophy of ministry statement. And uh, again, reading that verse, you know, that they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So what did they devote themselves to? Well, first thing on that list was the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching? Well, it was the teaching of the Lord Jesus. (laughs) They spent three years being taught by him. And, of course, Jesus taught the Old Testament and said, I'm the fulfillment of it. And the apostles did the same thing. And the church, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. There, too, it's a building, and it's built upon solid biblical instruction. They were a biblical community. You know, from the beginning, from the very beginning, the spiritual community realized uh, the importance of being people who would be guided through life, guided through life from the Word of God. They understood the Bible was not just a topic to be discussed. I mean, a lot of people like to talk about the Bible. But they understood it was more than that. It wasn't just a topic to be discussed, but the truth that directed how they were to live their lives. Not just when they were gathered, but when they were apart. I mean, that's what they understood. They saw the connection between what God says in his word, and how they were to live their lives day by day. And consequently, their gatherings were not simply social get-togethers. You know, they they weren't. They they did socialize when they got together, but that was the point of gathering together. It was one of the elements that they accomplished, but they needed to get together to hear from God about how they were to live to the glory of God. They understood that. And though they ate meals together, it was not just an opportunity to get together and stuff your face, you know. Rather, it was to fill your heart with the milk and the meat of the Word of God. They understood that. To them, public gatherings were not an opportunity to proclaim, uh, you know, one's personal political views. A whole lot of that has been done in the last year. Or personal agendas. Or philosophies of life, but rather to hear what God said about life, about how life was to be lived to his glory. And they gathered together to proclaim the living and active word of God. Think of that verse, you know, that, that I just, that last sentence kind of comes out of Hebrews 4. The, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And, you know, it pierces through the division of the of the, the joints and the marrow and the soul and the spirit. And in other words, it cuts down below the surface of our lives and it gets right down to the core of our being and it becomes the discerner of the thoughts and intentions of our heart. That's what the Word of God will do for us. That's what it should do for us as a community of people so that we end up looking at life and say, well, this is right and this is wrong because you know, that's what God says is right or wrong. This is holy and this is unrighteous. And we know that because God's word says that. Or this is how I should, you know, deal with this situation. You know, this conflict that I have with this person. Uh, 
you know, that I, that I should have uh, no unwholesome no words proceeding out of my mouth, but only that which is good for edification, you know, adds grace to the need of the moment. You see, that, that's just the word of God coming out of me there. I, I didn't quote a reference to you, but that's right out of Ephesians 4. And that's what they knew that they needed to be, that they had, had to hide the word of God, treasure the word of God in their hearts so that when they encountered life, they could think about life from God's point of view. They would have a heavenly perspective of what was going on. And they would be able to share the word of God with one another in times of need. So, you know, someone comes in and they say, they're in tears like, like Brenda, who now has left to go home, be with Jane. But, you know, she was in tears. They're like, Mom fell today and she's hurting so bad. And she's just... And, and words of comfort will pour out of us because we know that, you know, the scripture tells us that we are to comfort one another with the same comfort with which we've received you know, in our times of difficulty. And so we wrap our arms around a person. We share a word from the Lord. Not like, oh, I just heard the word Lord tell me. It's like it just comes out of my heart because that's what I put there. Or, you know, I'm interacting with someone and, I, and I'm hearing them use some pretty aggressive language with someone. Well, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hey, brother. You know, have, have you thought about the words that you're speaking? I think you need to put a guard over your mouth. I, I think that you need to consider whether the words that you're speaking are uplifting or tearing down. I think that the, you, know, you need to consider whether you're, you're being gracious in your words or harsh like the world. That's just coming out of the scripture. That's, you know, that's what a biblical community does. They see God's book as the guidebook for life, and they interact with one another at that level. They see someone that is struggling, worrying about finances, and, and so they say, hey, you know, let's pray about that, because we really, you really shouldn't be worrying about that, because I've never seen the righteous forsaken or God's seed out begging for bread. And, and, and maybe he's brought you into this time of hardship so that I could open up my pocketbook along with my heart and help you in this time of need. That's what a biblical community does. They think about life from God's perspective. And that's what they were doing, and that's what we need to be doing. Not that we aren't doing that, but be encouraged if you're one of those that are and be convicted if you are not putting enough of the word of God in your heart so that you know how to interact from a biblical perspective with someone in their difficulty. And by the way, pastors need that too. Pastors need that too. I've needed brothers to tell me, hey, I know it's been tough, but you know, God's still in charge. God is reigning. God will see us through this. I need, I, I need that too. So let's be a biblical community. And, and it would not be going too far to say that the God's spiritual community is one which actually devotes itself to the word of God. Devotes itself. That's what they did. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And I wonder, you know, we devote ourselves to a lot of different things in life. This time of year, a lot of people are devoting themselves to fishing or camping or preparing themselves to go fishing or camping. Or, you know, they're devoting themselves to their yard. I love yard work. I, I do yard work. 
Carol and I love working in our yard. We're, we're devoted to it. We are. Or devoted to, what well, you, you have your own list, right? But that those things should not be as high on the list of things devoted to as the Word of God. Because the Word of God, you know, gives us what has been official not only for this life, but the life to come. So, as I think about that, I think that it's not uncommon among many churches today to be almost the opposite of a biblical community. More and more churches are abandoning the Bible. I mean, it's, it's not an outright, hey, we've thrown the Bible out, we're using a new guidebook. They might, in fact, you know, hold up the Bible and read a verse, and, and then, you know, the preacher gets up and he doesn't really speak out of the Word of God at all. In fact, it's more about his words, his philosophy of life, or his pep rally, or his ministry. We need to be a biblical community. You know, emotional experiences and, and the miraculous has become almost the focus and center of so many places, so many churches. And, and the experiences themselves have become, in their thinking, the proof of what God is doing. You know, rather, uh, the Word of God is to be the guide and the validation of what we experience and what we're feeling. You know, and, and we shouldn't be manipulating the word of God to make it say what we wanted to say to feel good about our experiences. Or to validate, you know, the feelings that we have or the things that we've chosen to do. The early believers knew knew as as we should know that, that sound doctrine is to be the guide and the measurement of all things relating to how we're to live to the glory and honor of Christ. They were a biblical community. So they were a unified community, and they were a biblical community. Thirdly, they were a sharing community. And we see that right in our text as well. Luke put it this way, they were devoting themselves to fellowship. To fellowship. Not only did the early believers continually seek to learn from Christ's chosen apostles, they were also drawn to fellowship at many different levels. And we just read some of those levels in that paragraph. I mean, they were sharing property or proceeds from property, possessions. They were sharing meals with one another. We read right there in the text. They were living life together. And, it, you know, it was, wasn't, uh, you know, demanded commune living, but it was community living. And when Christ had opened up their hearts to the Son of God, the Son of God opened up their hearts to one another. They were a sharing community. So there, there was a balance. There was a balance in the early church between instruction from the uh, scriptures and sharing life together, between sharing the word of God and sharing their lives with one another. That, and within our group, we may all know this already, but I'll just remind you, it's good to be refreshed in our understanding of words in the scripture. You know, this, the, this word fellowship, what, what is that? What, is, what does that word mean? I mean, it's a word that's not used just in spiritual circles. If you go to school, uh, you know, to become a doctor, or let's say you go to school to become a lawyer, uh, and you, you join a practice, 
after you've got your degree and so on, you become a fellow. You get a fellowship with the practice, with a law firm or a, a medical firm. And it's a, it's a, it means the same thing. You become part of it. You become one of the partners in it. And so this word, the, the Greek word, many of you know it. It's the word koinonia. And from it, we get this word, fellowship. And it, it, it means to have a share. It means to be partners, to have a communion with one another. It, it means to have things in common. And, and in fact, the, the Greek New Testament is, was written in what was termed as Koine Greek. And all that that meant was it was the common man's language. Not the high educated language of Aristotle and Socrates and Plato and, and so on. It was just the common man speak. And that's what the New Testament was written in. And it's the same root word for fellowship or koinonia. Uh, this idea of having things in common. So this idea of commonality and, and sharing and fellowship in the in this uh, early Christian church... I want to demonstrate it first from a negative perspective, if I could. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18 is what we're going to look at. And Joel has it up there on the screen uh, for us. Paul talks about the importance of believers being separated from any kind of partnership with people of, of the world, with unbelievers, because... Because of this, because at the deepest moral and spiritual levels, there's no commonality. They have nothing in common. They have a different Lord. They have a different kingdom that they're a part of. They have a different purpose in life. And that's what Paul is addressing. Now, as we read this, understand that this quoted out of the Old Testament. Paul's quoting out of the Old Testament. We understand that. Basically, that was God's message to the children of Israel as well, that they were not to have things in common or have partnership with the nations that had been living in the land that God promised them. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. And so Paul's drawing it forward, and the same principle is true. It was true throughout the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. It's true today that we are to understand that we are to be a distinct people a holy people, a separated people who at the deepest moral and spiritual levels don't have things in common with the world. Now, that doesn't mean we don't care about the world or that we isolate ourselves from the world. Let's you know, build a community, build up the walls, and no one comes in that's you know, not part of the group. No, it doesn't mean that at all. Jesus said, Lord, I don't, uh, Father, I, I, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, that you'd protect them while you... They're in the world. They're not of the world as I'm not of the world. And the world's going to hate them just as it's hated me. It's going to persecute them just as it persecuted me. In fact, all the persecution that would be coming my way is going to be going their way. But they're distinct people. We are to be that. So we read Paul's words. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, that's not the word fellowship there, but it's the same idea, right? Don't be unequally yoked, bound together with unbelievers. For, explain why, he says, for what fellowship, there's that word, has righteousness with lawlessness. 
What fellowship, what in common is there between right living according to God's moral character and lawlessness, which is sin, right? John describes sin as lawlessness. So uh, 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 a refusal to obey God's moral character and God's morals. What, what's the commonality between them? None. These are rhetorical questions, aren't they? Is there any commonality, any fellowship there? No. No, and then, and then he says, and what communion, it's a different word, but it's the same idea, has light with darkness. Well, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And we are sons of light, not sons of darkness. Right? And by sons, I don't mean just the men. Sons and daughters of light, not of darkness. We no longer live or, well, we no longer are controlled by the domain of darkness. We've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, which is the kingdom of light. So how could we have a lot of commonality? Now, I know during the summer, I'm the same way. I, I don't have quite the problem of going to sleep, you know, in, in a, a room that has some light in it, as my wife does. But, you know, it, the sun's setting after 11 o'clock now. And sometimes it's a little hard to go to sleep. Why? Because you're used to darkness when you sleep. But what commonality does your bedroom have now between light and darkness? <laughs> They're entirely different, aren't they? And so a lot of people struggle, or they put tinfoil over their windows. They try to get, you know, block out uh, shades, that kind of thing. Because you know, you don't want light if you want darkness for sleeping. There's no commonality there. And then he says, and what accord has Christ with Belial? Well, who's Christ? He's our Lord, right? He's the Lord God. <laughs> and Belial, false God, which is really not a God. So there's no accord between them. Or what has a believer, what part has a believer with an unbeliever? There's no part shared there between believers and unbelievers, he says. And, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Well, there is no agreement, obviously, between the temple of God, which, by the way, we are the temple of God. And in a sense, the world is the temple of idols. Is there agreement? No, there's, there's not agreement there. And then he, then he puts an uh, explanation to that. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, because that's true, come out from among them and be separate. Be distinct, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So quite a distinction made between fellowship from the negative. Don't have fellowship with the world. You don't have anything in common with them if you're a follower of Christ. Different kingdoms, different kings, different lords. But we must fellowship together. And, and, and that's clearly demonstrated, again, as you read through the book of Acts and what we've already read in chapter 2, and it just continues as you go through the book, you clearly understand that they lived life together. They had everything in common. Everything. 
So fellowship, fellowship. It's such a richly significant term, isn't it? And yet, to me, it is sad that it has been relegated to the sentimental and superficial uh, you know, attachment of a random collection of individuals. What do you mean by that, Spencer? Well, I mean, you know, well, I went fishing with uh, you know, my uh, friend the other day, could be a Christian friend, I went fishing the other day and we had fellowship down on the river. What? Yeah, you did share in fishing. Hopefully you shared in more than that. Hopefully you shared in more than that. Because Christian fellowship isn't just the act of sharing an activity or participating with someone in something. Christian fellowship is the act of sharing or participating in things with respect to our Lord and our faith in him and how that affects our life. So can you have fellowship in that sense, when you're on the river fishing for kings or reds or whatever? Well, yes, you can. Because you could be reminding each other as, as that's happening and the fish aren't really running very well and no, no one's really hooking anything. Well, just remember the Lord is in charge of the fish who swim through the paths of the sea. And while he's giving us authority over the fish, you know, and dominion over the earth, Psalm 8, uh, Let's remember, he's the one who brings them in to the rivers, and he's the one that sends them out. He's the one that brings them back to the very spot where the egg, you know, was hatched, and those little, little, little fishies finally went out to the ocean. And, you know, uh, you can remind each other of that. Yeah. Or you can have Christian fellowship when you're there on the river, and someone hooks a, a red, and, and they pull it in, and you're, they're your brother in Christ, and and you, oh, let me help you. And oh, no, it's in the head. It's not in the mouth. You want me to release it for you? Yeah, that would be the right thing to do, wouldn't it? Because, you know, God tells us we're supposed to honor government and, the, you know, the, the laws that they set up, whether it's, you know, speed limit laws or, uh, you know, catch and release laws or you know, limits or where the hook has to be or, you know, that kind of thing. I cannot tell you how many times when we would be out, uh, Pastor Tom and, and his wife Sandy and perhaps someone else, and we were out hunting and we would see moose and we would have a conversation about, you think that thing's legal? Uh, it's kind of hard to tell. It's not like they wear a sign saying, I'm a legal moose, shoot me. So you got to figure out whether it's got four brow tines or three or two or, you know, and it's different in different parts of the, the state. And, or is it 50 inches? Well, how do you figure 50 inches? You can't run up and say, pause, going to put a ruler on you, you know. And so you, we had many a conversation and we would get to the place where it's like, you know, that could be legal, but I don't want to take a chance. And it wasn't a chance just in the sense of I don't want to get caught. It was a it was the right thing to do to not shoot it because it would honor government. That made laws so that there would be moose the next time I went out there that would be legal. Because we didn't kill all the moose when they were not legal. You say, so yes, you can have Christian fellowship doing anything, sewing, cooking, working in the yard, working on the building here, you know, uh, out to dinner with some Christian friends, whatever. It can be distinctly a different kind of thing than if you are out with coworkers that don't know the Lord. You can make it into a Christian 
fellowship time at that meal. That's the way we ought to live life, in fellowship with one another. And I think this should cause us to realize that the church, you know, the church uh, Sunday, you know, in particular, I'm thinking, uh, should mean more to us than simply going to a specific place for a designated period of time. You know, that idea of going to church. Are you going to church this weekend? Yeah, well, I I can't do that because I'm going to church this weekend. And, of course, the church is in the building. We talked about that last week. It's the people, right? But we shouldn't be thinking in terms of just of being a specific place or a, a period of time that we, quote, fellowship. Rather, being a church means that we're people who share our lives together, not just on a Sunday morning, but as we are going through the week as well. And the kind of sharing community we read about in Acts is one where people's lives were so intertwined that they were sharing everything again. Money and food and all of that. They were sharing it. And this created, I think, more than just a sense of belonging or a sense of family. It stimulated within them an intense loyalty. A loyalty to the Lord and consequently a loyalty to each other. The likes of which is often lost today with independent believers. Better to be interdependent believers. The church is oftentimes filled with independent believers. Now, one other question about this idea of sharing, being a sharing community or a church that is fellowshipping, uh, you know, it's a critical element for us and living a path that you know, on a path that glorifies God. Fellowship, it's one of those key ingredients that God causes or uses in our life to keep us from sin and disobedience in living a, a righteous life. I mean, I think it's one of the most important things that the Christian life has to offer to keep us walking on a, you know, a holy path. Now, now think with me for a minute about the book of uh, the Old Testament, but particularly the book of Deuteronomy, where they're just getting ready to enter the land that God had promised them after missing out on it for 40 years because they didn't believe the Lord. And, and God told them, when you enter in, don't go in and, and make any treaties with anybody. In fact, go in and totally wipe out those other nations. And we're not going to address the harshness of that or whether that was harsh or you know, why was God so, you know, warmongering in the Old Testament, but not in the New? We're not going to address that. That's a different, different subject. But it was very clear. God said to them, as Paul quotes, and we've already read, they were not to have fellowship with those people, those nations. And the reason was clearly stated that, that if they made treaties with the Ite clans, Right, the Ike clans, you know what I'm talking about? And they intermarried with them. Their hearts would eventually be drawn away from the Lord to serve false gods. I'm going to read Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 there. Just as one example of this, what God is saying to them. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away many nations before you, that 
There's the Ike clans, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. You shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and hew down their ashram and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then in verse 16 it says, You shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will, de uh, will deliver to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare for you. That would be a snare for you. you you've, you've got to cut them off and cut them out of your life. Otherwise, they will be a snare for you. Would that mean that God didn't care about, you know, people that weren't part of Israel? Well, no, he, he did. He did. In fact, he wanted Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. But they had to first be a people for God's glory within the land before they could effectively be a light to the nations that were caught in darkness. So in 2 Corinthians 6, you know, as we saw, Paul commanded us that we, we are not to be bound together with unbelievers because at the deepest moral and spiritual levels, we don't have anything in common. And we're to be separate from those who are so distinctly different from us because they don't know the Lord. It's the same thing that he said to Israel. Somehow we think that we're not under those same kind of guidelines. We are. And that's all wrapped up in our fellowship with one another, not fellowship with the world, because we don't really have anything in common with them. One other passage, just take your, take your minds here, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. It speaks about the need of fellowship. It talks about more than that, but you'll hear it in these verses. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now the word fellowship's not in there, but that's exactly what it's talking about. The importance of us fellowshipping with one another, sharing life with one another. Now the book of Hebrews is written to primarily Jewish Christians, those who had been part of the Jewish faith, grown up under the law, had heard the gospel and professed faith in Christ. And some of the people that were in this group may not have fully known Christ. They were associated with the Christians. But others in the body, they were definitely Christians, but they were wavering in their faith. And the primary purpose of the book of Hebrews is to, to show those who are wavering in their faith the glorious supremacy of Christ over anything that they had in their uh, previous life under the law. 
But it's important to notice that the author indicates that just having knowledge of Christ, believing in Christ, being in Christ, is not enough. It must be shared with others who also believe. That's what he's saying. We are to hold fast our faith in Christ, and we are to stimulate one another in our faith in Christ. So, you know, it, it must be shared with others who, who believe, because not everyone is at the same level of belief, right? Not everyone is at the same maturity in Christ, and so we need one another. The stronger need to help the weaker. The older need to help the younger. We need fellowship. It is absolutely critical. It's important, I think, too, to, to think about in the age and individualism in which we live, to notice something about the New Testament itself, primarily the epistles. So what's that? Well, that's from Romans through Jude, right? Those are the epistles. Pauline epistles and Johannian epistles, Petrine epistles, Jude wrote an epistle, so on. All these letters that were written for our growth and instruction uh, so that we might know how to live life in a way that is most glorifying to God. And it's important to note that as you look at the epistles, almost all of them are written to a church not to individuals. And even the individual ones, First and Second Timothy and Titus, those pastoral epistles, are written so that, they, that you know, Timothy, as, as a man of God within a church in Ephesus, and Timothy, or Titus, on the island of Crete, where he was serving in leadership, that they would know how to protect the church from false teachers, And so it's really all written to the church, not to individuals. Why is that important? Well, because we live in a a day and age where we we think, well, you know, I was was reading the epistle of Philippians, and, you know, I, I saw that God was clearly telling me this, and he may have been telling you that. But more clearly, God was telling it to the church. You're a member of the church. But the whole church is to get this. And it's really telling us how we are to live with one another to the glory of Christ. Not just how we are to live individually to the glory of Christ. So, fellowship is critical for us. And you've probably known people over the years that were, you know, very active in Christian fellowship and fellowship in a church and very involved maybe in Bible studies and so on. And, And then they... They stopped being as consistent. Uh, it, it became more common uh, during the summer to go camping than to, you know, to gather with the saints or, or fishing or hunting or snow machining or skiing or just, you know, a nice day at home. It becomes more common than actually gathering with the rest of the saints and sharing life that way. What often happens with people like that? Well, then they stop eventually fellowshipping at all. Or they'll show up every now and then. What do you think is going on in a life that is missing out on that sharing of life? It's not good. It's not glorifying to God. Well, you know, I think you can glorify God even if you're not really active in a church. I 
I don't know that you can get that out of the New Testament because the church is so important to Christ. It's the church which he's building and the gates of hell will not prevail against. It's not just the Christian. It's the church. But what are you robbing? If, if, if that's you or the people that you've known, you, you're, you're taking yourself away from them. Well, so? Remember your member? Your little finger? Your toe, your an eye. And so the next time something big needs to be done and needs some bodies to lift it, that little finger missing can make a difference. I mean, that's a, that's a metaphor if you didn't get that. Get the point? We need fellowship. It's critical for us. And God wants us to be, first of all, a unified body, community, God, secondly, wants us to be a biblical community. We're sharing life from a biblical point of view, right? We're living that way and we're sharing life that way. And then we're a a sharing church. Just end today with just the the joy of uh, thinking about yesterday as there was a memorial service here for one of our sisters, Shelly. Lost her brother and there was an opportunity over the last couple of weeks for people in this body to share, right? To share with Shelley, verbally, physically, having the service here, words of encouragement, comfort, preparing food, that kind of thing for all the other people that were here as well. Just coming and participating in, in that time of remembrance and celebration of a life that's sharing life together and that's living out the bible and it goes a long way towards being a unified people to the glory of god are you in the community probably probably everyone is but i don't know that I don't know if you're actually in the community of the world or if you're a community in the God. I hope all of us here are, you know, in, in the community of God's people. That we've all trusted in Christ. We've all given our life to him. We're all seeking to honor him. But if, if you're not, and God has revealed that to you, because the things that we've been talking about, you really can't see that as being the way that you live life. It really didn't describe your life. Well, you could have that kind of life. Such a beautiful life, by the way. Being part of God's people. Isn't it? It is. But if, if that's not you, then I'd urge you, trust in Christ today. Jesus died for you. God so loved you. We were singing about it. The deep, deep love of God for people that he would give his only son. Jesus so loved you that he laid down his life and took it up again so that you might have life in eternal relationship with God. But your sin's in the way of that. Just repent of your sin and trust in Christ and you'll be part of what God is doing in his kingdom. It truly is wonderful. Well, Lord, we come to you and we're thankful that we can. We do so in the name of Christ and because of what he's done for us. Thank you that you love us so much. And we've celebrated that today in a very powerful way, just 
worshiping through song and worshiping through remembrance and now time in your word. And it's been made so very clear to us that uh, you're so gracious and merciful to invite people into your family through faith in your son. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. So you're, you're so good, and we are thankful for that. And we, we pray that as we continue to uh, kind of focus uh, over this time period on what the life was like in the early church, that we'll see that's what life is like here. That's the way we'll be, always. So we might be a light to those in darkness. So that while we don't have anything in common with someone, we want to share with them that which can give them forgiveness of sins. So while we are separate and distinct from the world, help us, Lord, because of who we are in Christ and what we enjoy as your people, that we'll be those who would reach out to others and share with them the beauty of knowing Christ. And uh, bring, bring into your family, uh, such as those that you've chosen from all eternity, and yet bring, bring them to a point of faith in time, as a result even of us sharing our faith with them. So use us to your glory. Thank you, Lord, for the food we're going to eat. What a joy that is. So we give you praise in Jesus' great name. Amen.